Uh, Joe mentioned I, I've been a pastor forever. I was uh, 23 when I took my first church. And uh, it was a different day, and it was crazy, and I thought I knew something in those days, and I've been systematically leaking for the last 35 years. I, I don't know near as much today as I did when I was 23. I have lost a lot. But I'm a little more sure about what I believe, and I just believe that coming to Jesus is the best thing you're ever going to do in life. Uh, before I get into talking about that, though, some of you have asked me the work I do now. I, do, you like, do you like bad preacher jokes? Do, do, do you guys okay with that? I, I know your pastor is younger than I am, but every once in a while you need some really bad preacher jokes. So um, a couple of years ago, I hit 60 and I retired. Now listen, here's the bad preacher joke. My good years were behind me, so I put on Michelin's. I retired and kept rolling. Some of you got it. Good. I, okay. Bad preacher jokes still work in some places. I'm glad to hear that. So about two years ago now, I began working with New Hope Community Services, which is a refugee housing settlement society. And uh, we bought a 13-unit apartment building in Surrey because you know this, real estate in Vancouver, real estate in Richmond, real estate, if you're going to buy real estate, arguably the best bang for your buck is Surrey or further east. So we bought a 13-unit building, and we have 10 units designed for refugee families and three units for Canadian families. And new incoming refugee families come they live with us for 12 to 24 months in this residential approach with the goal that in 12 to 24 months they find their feet, get on their feet, and get going. And that's what we do. Now I want to tell you two stories just to inspire you and to inform you. Um, a year ago in March, Haval, Eva, and Rose, a young family from a Middle Eastern company, a country, came to us. They were living in their home country, and he was a television reporter. And the television group that he worked with asked him to do a video report on terrorism in their city. And if you saw this man, you'd know why he was a TV reporter. He just had the look of a very photogenic person. And his wife is, she's a movie star, and their daughter is just amazing kind of thing. So he did a seven-minute clip saying where the terrorists had their headquarters, the kind of people that were involved, and showed some of the outcomes of the things they did. He thought he'd done his job. Seven days later, he's in his condo in a world-class city, and four men with guns come through the door, pointing him at his head, his wife's head, and say to him, we know who you are, we know who your wife is, and we know who your daughter is and where she goes to school. If you ever do what you did again, we'll be back. This is a man of considerable life experience. He realized his gig was up, so he used up his own resources. He booked a ticket to America because he thought America would be his friend. And so they flew to SeaTac or to Seattle. And they arrived about 11 o'clock one night. And thinking that it was going to be easy, he went up to the immigration department there. And in, he has about 50% English. He said he would like to be a refugee. He would like asylum because of the terrorism in his country. And the immigration official in Seattle started to laugh. And he says, well, we, yeah, well, I'll give you a visitor visa, but we don't do that stuff here. You need to go to Canada if you want to get that asylum stuff. And so Haval took that as guidance, and so he takes his immigration, and he goes up to the curb, this is SeaTac around midnight now, and he sees the rows of taxis, and in his 
commendable English. He says, I want to go to Canada to become a refugee. And this enterprising taxi driver knows that he's got a live one on his hands. So when Haval says, how much would you charge? The taxi driver says, $1,500 US cash. And Haval, having no context, says, fine. And he pays it. So he hops in this cab, and they're now 2 o'clock in the morning, driving up I-5 to come to Canada. And as you get within a couple of kilometers of Blaine, just going through, and many of you made that trip, the taxi driver says, I'm not going across there. And Haval says, why not? I said, well, if I go over there, the paperwork, and I'll be there for eight hours. So, so he dropped him off on the side of I-5, about a half a kilometer. He says, those lights up there. Just walk up to there. So here's Haval and Rose and Ava, two rollerboard suitcases, 2.30 in the morning, it's pounding rain because it's March in Vancouver, and he walks up to the border and asks for asylum, which is one of the ways you become a refugee. He gets arrested because that's the procedure in Canada. It's, it's not criminal, but it's the way it's taken care of. And so he's put into a containment place, their house arrest, it's not punitive, and they determine that he's not a criminal himself, he's not a terrorist, so now they've got to find a place for him. So they come to live with us, and so they arrived in March a year ago. Um, it took a month or two, and we always, we have a process where you just, just let your nerves relax, just settle. Just, and after a month or two, the question becomes, so what are we going to do now for the rest of our life? Haval was aware of the fact that his English was not good enough that he would ever be a TV reporter again. And it's that old story, maybe you've even asked yourself, if you weren't doing what you're doing and you had to do it all over again, what would you do differently for the rest of your life? And Haval, all his life, and I mean, he's like got a GQ. I mean, he's a good looking guy, he's got the look, and his wife, and he, he says, I've always wanted to be a hairdresser. And I'm like, Sure, if that's what you could do that. And so we went back and he took his license out and he became a hairstylist. And uh, in March of this year, after being with us here, he never asked us for a dime that whole time he was with us. He graduated, he got a job in Port Coquitlam, realized that driving an hour back and forth wasn't going to work, so he and his family relocated. They graduated. And, and I stay in contact with him. Uh, we miss his presence because he was a contributor, not a consumer. And that's one of the stories that we work with because our goal is to get people from paralysis to productivity. And we're a success, not when they come to us, but when they leave us. And uh, that's what we do. Um, in August, well, earlier this month, August the 1, uh, an opening came open in our building because we are all, not always, but we graduate people. And I can't say when the next person or the next group will graduate or the next family, but when it comes open, we usually have about 30 days notice. And we have probably about 10 applications because there's still lots of people out there, families out there looking for accommodation and settlement. And we had 10 applications come in and we chose to take and, and we, we took the harder choice of the 10 that came in. We chose to take Cecile and her two children. Uh, she's a single mom from the Congo who three years ago lost her husband in the war there and fled to Kenya and has been living the last two years in a refugee camp in, in Kenya. And Canada has invited her in, so she's not sponsored by a church group or a local group. She's a Canadian government refugee. So she lives with us for the next 12 months or 24 months, depending on it. But we took her because, and, and I'm, I'm being transparent here, as we looked at the 10 applicants, hers was arguably the most sorrowful of them all. If nobody has a chance, she's got less 
You know what I'm saying? A single mom coming in as a refugee. What? So out of compassion, we actually took her from not that great to actually we're going to work with her. And so there's a, a woman's group from a church in Surrey, five women, all 30, 40-year-old women, professional, you know, like women today are so capable. And they've taken her on as their protege for the next 12 months. And as I met with the guiding team, I said to them, you know, here's what I want. I want Cecile to, could she have a job in 12 months? Could she make me enough income to support her family? Could her kids be in school? And, and the women, yeah, we, we can work towards that. Because you can't get there today, but if you start walking, it's amazing where you get to over time. And Cecile's come to be amongst us, and that's kind of the stuff we do. Uh, one of the, just as a sidebar, uh, uh, it costs us about $9,600 a year to provide housing. We, we actually charge rent, but it's a percentage rather than a, a huge amount. And so there is some rent paper, there's shortfall, there's settlement services, there's, there's all these things. So it costs us about $9,600 a year. If you want to contribute and help Cecile get, get to the end place, I would love it. I, I, I passed around a clipboard earlier, there's, it's going around, there's some things there. If you're sitting in a bench, I put a little blue card on the, uh, on the edges of the bench. If you want to contribute, that would be fantastic. If you want to write a check for $9,600, don't. Why not? Because I want everybody to be blessed. So just write the check for $4,800, okay? <laughs> just get half the blessing. Don't steal all the blessing today. So if you need to write a big check, just write it for forty. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. And if you want to talk further afterwards, I would be honored to tell you a lot more stories. Yeah. We come here today, though, um, to hear a message from God's Word. If you have your Bibles, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I just want to explain where I'm going. I want to talk to you today about coming to Jesus, how it does and doesn't work. Sometimes people come to Jesus, they, they just make that move. And other times, the very next person to them hearing the same thing doesn't come to Jesus. Or maybe in your journey, there's times when, when you know you walk closely with Jesus and other times you missed him. Uh, there's times when you're talking to people and you think, oh, I just want you to experience what I experienced. I want you to find what I found. How can I get you to come where I've gone? And, and at times people say, I want to go there. And other times people say, I'm not interested kind of thing. You think, well, what is it that's going on? And it's that very deep question today I want to explore with you is, how come sometimes people come to Jesus, sometimes they don't? How come sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't? How come you came to Jesus, and maybe even somebody in your family didn't? Or the people that you're living and loving with, how come they're struggling to come to Jesus? So we're going to look in John chapter 5, verse 31 to 46, and, and explore there a little bit some of that rationale. Um, as you're turning there, I just want to just throw another seed thought into your brain. If you have come to Jesus in your life at some point in time, I'm going to imagine there was probably somebody that was influential in you taking that step. Think with me for a moment. Who was influential in helping you make that step? You, you might have grown up in a Christian home where your mom and dad had faith. And you think about the modeling, the words, the actions, the behaviors, 
the prayers, and you think, hmm, that was influential. Maybe it was a, a pastor or a youth leader or a visiting speaker, but somebody pointed you to Jesus, and you think as you work your way around the triangle, that was pivotal, that person was influential. Maybe it was a colleague, somebody that you work with, you think, I saw the way they lived, or I heard what they had to say, or I watched how they handled things, and I was, because the truth is, most of us in our journey have had somebody point us to Jesus. Let's pick up John chapter 5. It says there, and I'm reading the words of Jesus, um, if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that his testimony about me is true. You have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it that you may be saved. John was a lamp that burned and gave light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his light. I have testimony weightier than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I am doing, testify that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. I do not accept glory from human beings, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your hearts. I've come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe since you will accept glory from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? As I think through this passage today, I want to just roll some ideas by you. And the very first thing I want to talk about is, is this idea of um, how come, or what doesn't usually work? Let's put it that way. Jesus says in verse 37 that if I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. It, it doesn't work. You know what he's getting at here? He's referring to an Old Testament truth in Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 7. It, it says that no witness by itself validates the claim. You need two or three witnesses to validate the truth. It's like if you get arrested by the police and they say, you know, we think you did something Wednesday night and we're going to charge you with that. And you say, well, that's impossible. I wasn't even there on Wednesday night. And they say, well, where were you? I was at home. And you'll say, no, you were at the the 7-Eleven, and we think you broke into the 7-Eleven, or we think you did that. And you say, that's impossible. I was at home on Wednesday night. And they'll say, really? Prove it. And you'll say, my wife was there. My daughter was there. My friend from across the street came over at 9 o'clock and borrowed my lawnmower. And they'll say, oh, so you've got some witnesses. Yes. But you by yourself, if you say something, there's no guarantee that it's going to carry the day. And that's what Jesus says there. He says, if I, if I just 
express myself to you, you're not going to listen to me. It doesn't carry weight. And as I thought about that, sometimes when we want people to come to Jesus, we say, how about we just throw them in a locked room with Jesus and let Jesus pound them out of them? Wouldn't that be the best way? Just sick Jesus on them. And, and I thought about that because sometimes we think, let's not get in the way. Let's let Jesus just negotiate face on with them. And Jesus says, that doesn't always work. Really? Sometimes it doesn't work. In fact, more often than not, it doesn't work. Uh, I remember a few years ago, I, I have such good friends with Campus Crusade for Christ, and some of you maybe have worked with them. They're now called Power to Change, and trust me, these are, these are my friends. I'm not trying to be mean-spirited, but I remember, it must have been back in the late 80s, early 90s, they came up with the Jesus video, and they were sharing it as a method, a tool to reach people, and they said, this isn't, this isn't a preacher. This is Jesus. This is actually Jesus, and the words he's going to use are Jesus' words. And we printed it up and got it distributed, and we're ready to give it to every home in your neighborhood, and if you'll participate with us, we'll get the cost paid for. And as a young, open, idealistic pastor, I thought, what a fantastic idea. We bought a thousand Jesus videos, because we knew we weren't good at evangelism. We just kind of get our tongues tied. Let's let Jesus do the talking. So we distributed videos to every home in our community. And I remember the crusade guy, and he was a good guy. He, was, he says, you know, we think about 25% of the people that are going to view these videos are going to get converted. So you might want to have some Bible studies ready for the week after you pass out these videos because there's going to be a lot of fruit in the basket. And I'm like, that's a great idea. So we're preparing because we're going to sick Jesus on these people. And we passed them out. And a week later, nothing happened. We followed up with invitations, nothing happened. And it was like, oh my goodness, it didn't work. And a couple years after that, uh, another organization came through and, and shared with us a beautiful, beautiful coffee, coffee table book that was the Gospel of John. And it had some pictures in it and had kind of contemporary. It's called, Why Am I on This Earth? And, and they said, we think that we're just going to unleash the Word of God on people. And they're going to hear it and read it, and they're going to just respond to it. So do you want to participate in me? Because I was not as young, but I was still a young pastor. I thought this is a great idea. We put some money into it, and we passed out this beautiful, like, 40-page book, the Gospel of John with photos. And, and I'm anticipating a huge response. And the response was, you know, you can't see it because my fingers are tight close together. It was like this. And, and it puzzled me. Why when Jesus is clear on, verbally through video, literally through the words, how come people aren't responding? Why doesn't it work? Sometimes it doesn't work when Jesus goes head on with people. And, and here's what I think. One of the reasons is because, and I'll speak for Canada, I can't speak for the world, but I've grown up in Canada. Canada, we have had enough religious vaccination to be leery of anything religious coming toward us. We've had enough vaccination to make sure that we don't get taken over by it. So for instance, um, maybe yesterday, if if two people knocked on your door and they had briefcases and they had a magazine which warned, warned you about the coming of the end, 
How many of you invited them in? Said, oh, come on in. We need to talk about this stuff. This is fantastic. Most of you said, uh, no thanks. We're good. How many times have you walked down a street, whether it's a busy street here in Vancouver or other parts, and there's people standing there quietly with the magazine? And how many times, oh, I need one of those. Oh, my goodness, how much can I give you? No, you say, no, thanks. We've got enough awareness that we're like, we're not touching that. Can you imagine if two bright, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, young teenage men started walking down your street with button-down shirts on and short sleeves, and, and they mentioned that they were missionaries? How likely would you be saying, oh, we've been waiting for you? No, Canadians have had enough education to inoculate us. We're nervous about religion. And even Jesus full on, we're like, it doesn't work. But let me give you two times when maybe there's exceptions to the rule. And these are exceptions. Sometimes it does work. Sometimes it works when people are in a phenomenal crisis mode, when their life is falling apart, and all of the blinders, all of the barriers have been stripped away by the crisis. They are desperate. Uh, my friends, the Gideons, put Bibles in every hotel room and motel room, wherever they can. It's become a little more difficult. And every year, they'll get reports from somewhere where somebody in the middle of the night, at the end of their rope, when they had nowhere else to go, picked up the Gideon Bible and started reading about Jesus. And it saved their life. Sometimes, when you're midst of crisis, give them a Bible. Let Jesus loose. Sometimes uh, it works when people have zero orientation to Jesus. Not, not, not the Canadian inoculation, but zero. Uh, I work with a number of, well, non-Western friends now, people coming from Muslim countries, from Middle Eastern countries, and you'd be surprised the number of people that have zero orientation to Jesus are hungry to hear something about Jesus. Uh, a year ago, a couple invited me up to their suite. They are from a Middle Eastern country, and uh, I, I don't dig. I mean, it's a free country. You don't have to be a Christian to live in our building. You don't have to become a Christian. But we are Jesus' followers, so they know where I come from. And so as we're drinking tea, the woman says to me in her broken English, uh, Mr. Jamie, I tell you story. And I said, great. And she said, one year ago, I watched Jesus' video. And, my, and she, her English is bad. She said, my heart turned to Jesus. And it clicked for me because of all her country people, she was the only one not wearing hijab. And, and, and I said, so you became a Jesus follower. And she smiled. She said, yes, yes. And I looked at him, and he was so funny. He was like, it's, no, 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 me Muslim, me Muslim. You know, it was like, not me, not me, kind of thing. And what happened was she converted to Jesus and decided in Jesus she was free to not wear the trappings of another way of looking at life. And it caused huge alienation amongst her family, his family. And his family said to him, your wife is out of control. She's a shame to us. Get your wife in line. 
and they have a five-year-old son, your boy will grow up twisted if you do not fix this. And so based on that religious persecution, they applied for and were able to come to Canada. But I tell you that story because sometimes if people have zero inoculation to Christianity or religion, uh, Christian religion, they're more open. Sometimes it works, but more often than it doesn't. There's a second point in the passage. Let's go there. Um, it says that Sometimes there's some really helpful things for, for helping people to come to Jesus. Look at verse 32 with me, if you would. We're going to pick up there. Uh, it says that there is another who testifies in my favor, and I know that, he, that his testimony about me is true. You have, uh, you have sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it, that you may be saved. And, and what I want to get here is, Jesus says... There's somebody who points you to me. Jesus says there's somebody, not me, but you know, that points to me. And it's helpful. Uh, you know the story of John the Baptist. He was a prophet. He, was, he prophesied of Jesus coming. But he was more than just a theological figure. He was a human being that said, you got to look at this Jesus guy. He was... An individual who didn't just deal with abstract, it was experiential. He says, don't look at me. Look at Jesus. He was a John the Baptist figure that, that I want to suggest to you that people come to Jesus because somebody pointed them to Jesus and took the spotlight off themselves as attractive as they may be. Because some people love John. And John had this attractiveness that could have resulted in people following John. And John's like, no, 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 no. Get your eyes off me. Look at the one I'm looking to. And I want to suggest to you that people come to Jesus because somebody was influential in pointing them to Jesus. Um, my personal story um, I mentioned earlier that, well, last week anyway, um, I owe a lot of my spiritual journey to a woman named Shirley Stewart, who was a missionary with the Canadian Sunday School Mission in Northern Ontario in the 60s. I did not grow up in a Christian home as we might understand it to be today. And uh, it wasn't that I wasn't, how do I say this? I was aware of Christianity. I grew up in a home where we just assumed Christianity was for everybody. And some of you can relate to those days. Others are puzzled to hear that. But in the 60s, in the 50s, when I was growing up, we lived in a Christian, I won't say culture, but it was the accepted religion. Let me explain it to you. When we went to public school, we didn't go to Christian school. In public school, Every day at 8.30, we would stand up and we would recite together, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. You didn't have to go to church to say that. You didn't have to believe it to say that. It was just agreed that that's how you started the day. And in the early 60s, we would sing, God save our gracious queen, long live our noble... God save. And when we thought of God, we thought of the God of the Bible. 
And Canada, interestingly, has always asked its citizens on its census for religious data. And when you filled in your census in those days, you had choices. What religion are you? And so you could be Buddhist. It actually listed that out. You could be Hindu. Um, you could be, um, there was one other one, or you could be Christian. There were like four choices. Or oh, Jewish, yeah. You could be Buddhist, Hindu, Jewish, or Christian. And if those are your only four choices, what are you going to pick? And so my dad would pick the Christian box, even though he never went to church, didn't have much religion in him, but in his mind said, well, of course I'm a Christian. I'm not a Buddhist, you know. I'm not Jewish, and I'm not Hindu, I'm Canadian. You know, we're Christians in Canada. And so that was the mindset. So as I'm growing up, there's a piece of me that is always, you know, Christian. But I went to a youth camp at 15, and it was at a youth camp, this missionary, this single missionary, she's a woman, she'd be in her 50s in those days, she preached or taught or spoke the gospel, that being a Christian isn't about living in an atmosphere, it's about a personal relationship, you need to come to Jesus. And I remember at that time, coming to Jesus, it was a little bit like going to the chiropractor where, where click, oh, wow. And it wasn't dramatic, I wasn't a drug addict, you know, I wasn't a whatever, but it was a point of coming, and I, I, and I will for eternity, love Jesus, but mention Shirley Stewart, because she was influential. It was her modeling, her words, her encouragement that pointed me to Jesus. And that's why I wanted earlier when I said, who influenced you to Jesus? A very, very powerful piece in coming to Jesus is somebody in your life that validates it. Um, who was that? Here's another way of looking at it, too. In your life today, is there somebody that you are John the Baptist to them? You're actually given the opportunity not to be Jesus, but to point people to Jesus. And they're looking at your behavior. They're sussing up your attitudes. They're seeing how you handle stuff. And they're making decisions. It's amazing. People come to Jesus because somebody pointed them there. Um, let me drill a little deeper. There's a third point. It's found in verse 36 to 40. How does it really work? How do people really come to see Jesus in a real way? We'll pick it up in verse, 30, uh, verse 36 and 37. We see a couple things happening. Um, look what he says in verse 36, and I'll just pick it up there. Um, I have testimony weightier than that of John. For the works that the Father have given me to finish, the very works that I'm doing, testify that the Father has sent me. I'll pause there for a second. John says, look to Jesus, but when you look at me, you're going to see some things happening that require you to consider the deeper things of why they're happening. Jesus says, I'm doing some things with you, amongst you, that you need to consider. Could God be the source of them? And Jesus points to his works, and he says, these things show you something. Works of love, works of kindness. In Jesus' case, works of healings, works of feedings. Jesus' behavior 
wasn't just verbal. It was actual. It was active. It was demonstrable. And one of the things that seems to validate the Christian message is when Jesus' people are active and actual. And not just talking about it, but actually doing the kinds of things that people say, why are you doing that? What in the world? And you say, because the love of God is active in me, I have to do this. The love of God is so strong in me, it compels me to do this. It's not just me being a good Rotarian, and I love the Rotary. It's about me being an active follower of Jesus. I need to do the works of God. Uh, in my own journey, I mentioned I became a believer. I was about 16 at the time. I have a two-year-old younger brother. But two years later, I'm part of an active youth group. And I love what you do in youth ministry. It, like, do youth ministry. Do, do not stop doing youth ministry. Um, but we were having a pool party with our youth group. And my brother then was probably 15 or 16. And I invited him along. And we went to this pool party, and it was just a traditional, you know, high school, senior high, youth ministry pool time. Lots of fun, lots to eat, lots of laughter, lots of people having fun. Um, uh, and then a devotional. And then we prayed together, and then we went home. So we're going home about 11 o'clock on a Saturday night, and I'm driving. And my brother says to me, so what's up with those people? And I'm thinking, I don't know, what do you mean? He says, well... Like, are they on drugs or drinking? And I said, I uh, don't think so. Why do you say this? He says, well, they're really happy. I, I, don't, I don't, why are they all so happy? And, and it looks like they like you, and I don't like you. <laughs> and I'm thinking, and I said, I think the love of God is bigger than human ability. And you're right, I'm not really a likable guy by myself, but the love of God transcends that. And about two years later, he came to Christ. And he talks about going to that pool party in the grade 11 year, seeing the works of God being done. People loving people that weren't necessarily the most likable, lovable people. And that was a click factor to him. Um, it works when we do the works of God, not just talk about it. When we actually activate and live out. And people say, why are you doing that? There's no gain in it for you. You're being kind. You're being overly kind. You're being silly. You're loving people that are unlovely. You're helping people that are helpless. Why are you doing that? Because the works of the Father transcend our words. They speak to Jesus. There's something else that works. And uh, pick it up in verse 37. Um, it says, And the Father who sent me as himself testified concerning me. And what I understand Jesus is saying there is sometimes... God's voice speaks into our hearts about Jesus. And human words can't fully explain it logically. But you know in your heart, in the midst of a situation, that Jesus is speaking and touching your spirit. Um, Romans 8, 16 talks about the spirit himself bears witness in our hearts. That, that it's not logical, it's not audible per se, it's not even emotional, although there are emotions. We are body, soul, and spirit. We have physical side, we have emotional side, we have a spiritual side. But at the very core of our being in our spirits, we get this feeling like, oh my goodness, I gotta pay attention to this. And the person next to you is like, what? Pay attention to what? But in your heart, you know God is speaking to you today. 
about something, about himself, about a situation, and your spirit is sensing God's voice, God speaking. And I wish I could manufacture that. Like, wouldn't it be great if we just kind of got a videotape and we, we set everybody in a straight row? And No, because the Spirit of God is not a machine. He's, he's the Spirit of God. And he moves like the wind. And, and what one person over here is sensing, another person over here says, I didn't sense that at all. Or what somebody here is being affected by, somebody says, I wasn't affected, but totally differently. It's in our hearts. Our spirits are being touched. We know that God is real, that this Jesus is valid. Um, it works. Um, it's really real. But sometimes it doesn't work again. Um, let me pick up. And, and the reason why that is, is because sometimes people are just unwilling in their spirits. Look at verse 38. Um, You've never heard his voice nor seen his form. You think, Wait a minute, Jesus, you've been here being his voice. You've done his works. Yeah, but the people in front of you, you've never seen, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. If you don't believe in your spirit. It's all just words. And it's really funny. If you believe, it's amazing how powerful it is. But if you don't believe, it's amazing how silly it is. Uh, here's, here's a grand experiment. You could do this, and I think you could, you could probably see it. Um, say you went to, let's pick on UBC. And, and I like UBC. It's not a, but say you went to a fourth-year English class. People that are erudite in literature and you said to them in the fourth year English class read this book and tell us what it's all about thinking they're gonna read the Bible they're gonna figure it out and so they read it and they have zero belief and they'll come back and say oh yeah it's a book about it's the Judeo-Christian religious textbook uh, it mentions God in the Old Testament, who is this way. It mentions his person who claims to be a son in the New Testament this way. It talks about somebody named Paul who does all these things. It has some ethical advice. And it even has an end-of-the-world apocalyptic flavor to it. And they'll write their paper, and the professor will give them an A because they have captured the literature of the Bible. And you want to say, but it's not about the literature. It's about Jesus. And they'll say, well, you say that. That's what you believe. I don't believe that. See what I'm saying? If people don't believe, they're not going to see it. And the challenge, the, 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 the challenge is deep in our hearts, do we believe? And why do some things work and others not? Because at the very core of it, we just don't believe it. And beyond the initial coming to Jesus, isn't that the story of our journey today? There are times in our life when we struggle, when we strain, when it's thin and it's skinny. And at the bottom of it all, we think, I'm not sure I believe. In fact, the individual coming to Jesus, Lord, help me in my unbelief. Because when we believe, it does make a difference. And when we don't believe, we're unwilling. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. Yeah, it, it's and it can happen to us on a <laughs> on another level. You know, sometimes we're 
and this is us. I'm preaching. I'm not preaching about them. I'm preaching about us. Sometimes we're so quick to read the Bible, memorize the Bible, legislate the Bible, follow the Bible, that we're locked into a legal understanding of God, that we miss the very point of it all. It's not about legislation. It's not about adjudication. It's about Jesus. When we read the Bible, it is meant to warm and touch our hearts, not just control our behavior, not just separate us from others. It's designed at the very core of it all to invite us to experience afresh the Jesus who is the Son of God. And if you read the scriptures with that, you would see that. Like, how do I see Jesus in this? And it's a a very, very powerful attractive. As I read the Bible, it's not about me setting my life straight. It's about me finding Jesus who will help me set my life straight. It's a very important point. Um, the scriptures exist in a very deep level to point us to Jesus. Point number four is another deep level. What happens when people don't embrace Jesus? What happens when they say, I'm not interested? Or um, Verse 41. I do not accept glory from human beings, for I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God in your heart. I've come to my father's, come in my Father's name, and you do not accept me. But someone else comes in his name. You'll accept him. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another, from one another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? And, and here's a fascinating point. Jesus gives people an opportunity to believe in him. He's straight up with them, but they reject him. Not interested. What happens when people reject Jesus? They don't believe in nothing. They believe in something else. Think about that. Today, people are not totally unbelieving. In fact, you talk to the bulk of people today, and they will tell you, I am spiritual, not religious. People today are created body, soul, and spirit, and if they reject Christ, they will find somewhere else to put their religious, spiritual component. Uh, it's fascinating. I, I, again, I, I talk about my journey. Um, in the 80s and the 90s, I could go to a public meeting, and it was a day and an age when pluralism abounded, which is a, some of you are aware of that. And you could have your opinion, and as long as you expressed it politely, it was put into the box, and we'll make decisions based on the opinions. So I would go to town hall meetings or to public meetings, and I would stand up and say, I'm Reverend Jamie McDonald, and I recognize that not everybody sees this issue the way I do, nor the people I work with do, but it's important that we get a perspective from church-going, traditional Christian people. And regardless of the room, the moderator would usually say, thank you, Reverend McDonald, for your opinion. I did not own the answer, but I could speak to the answer. The things have shifted today. Nowadays, if I get up in a public forum and I say, I'm Reverend McDonald, the room goes, sit down. You're the cause of all our problems. If it weren't for you, we wouldn't be where we are today. It's your religious people. It's your Christianity. And you don't have to read much of the newspapers to realize we've, go we've gone from partnering in society to get the cold shoulder from society. Do not try and stand up and talk about Jesus because they reject him. But interestingly, if you were to survey society, 
they have not stopped believing. They have transferred their belief. And so, you know, what Brad Pitt believes about what he did in a previous life and how he's getting ready for the next life sounds pretty cool because Brad Pitt or Angelina believes that. That's a punched-out version of Buddhism. Well, maybe, but Brad Pitt believes it. <laughs> or somebody says, yeah, I'm spiritual. I, I believe that we're just all made of particles and we'll be reconfigured and we're all just working our way through stuff. And, and there's an invisible world and that course on miracles is really the best thing I've ever read. And you think, that's goofy Hinduism. Well, yeah, but, but it's not. It's what I believe. Everybody believes something. They may reject Jesus, but that doesn't mean they stop believing. If anything, they believe in something else quicker. Uh, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who, who says when, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. Uh, yeah. They mark my words. They will embrace something else. Finally, here's the last point. At the end of the day, people will have to live with the outcome of their accepting or rejecting the truth of Jesus and the evidence they were given. Look at verse 45 to 47. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. It's, it's not a punch-up. Jesus is at the end of the day saying, nah, nah, I told you, you're in trouble. He says, at the end of the day, your accuser is Moses on whom you put your hopes. Your hopes are set. There's evidence out there that at the end of the day, you will be held accountable for. If you believe Moses, you would have believed me, but you really don't even believe the evidence. You don't believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? And what I want to suggest to you today is that, that there is there's lots of evidence out there to validate Jesus. The psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Um, Jesus talks about coming to him as the son of God. And we, we wish we could communicate in such a way to people that they would just automatically, but the truth is they don't because in their hearts they don't want to believe. And the battle is we need to help with, work for, long after the hearts of people. How can we touch their hearts in such a way that they would believe? I got two conclusions, I'll wrap it up with this. Um, First conclusion is, what is your story of Jesus in your life? How is Jesus real to you? What difference does Jesus make to your journey? Uh, if you can clarify that, it's so helpful because Jesus is personal and personal to you. And it's just, what's your story of Jesus personally? That's so powerful. Maybe you've never had a personal story of Jesus and I I wouldn't assume in a group like this that everybody has so I'm not I'm not insider information but if you have never come to Jesus would today be the day that you make that decision it's the best decision you will make for eternity you may have grown up in a world that has a lot about Jesus you may have a culture that inoculated you from Jesus but would you pierce through all of that, all that grayness and say, I don't need to know about Jesus. I need to come to Jesus. Today is that day. That would be the best decision you would ever make in eternity, to come to Jesus. If you have a personal story, grab on that. 
And, and the reason why I say that, it is the most powerful weapon tool assisting you have as you live your life. Because the second application I want to give to you is, uh, having clarified your own experience, who do you know that you serve as John the Baptist to? Uh, who will you encounter that you truly, genuinely authenticate this story of Jesus? Because they are looking. And they make inclinations based on what they see. Love, mercy, grace, help, healing, forgiveness, the works of God point people to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we gather in a, in a place, and we call it a church building, and it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to come to church and to be with the saints. And uh, we thank you for this place, what it stands for, uh, but we recognize that it's the people in the place and the heart of, of people here that, that, that just touches your heart. And so as we've gathered here today, the hearts of your people have been affected by the word of God, by preaching a, a messenger from God, inviting people to pay attention to God. Lord, if there's someone here today that, that needs to turn their heart to Jesus, would this be the day where they lean into you? Lord, work in their hearts, touch their hearts. If there's some here today who have been leaning away from Jesus, that they believed but, but life has become difficult or circumstances become so overwhelming that they're being pulled away from, Lord, turn them around, turn them back to you. Let them believe in you for good, for God's gain. Turn them to Jesus. And I pray for the saints, the, the brothers, the sisters, the men and the women that love you and have energy for you as they leave this place, as they think of people in, this, in these days to come, would they be aware of the fact that words spoken do matter, actions taken do affect people? Would they be agents like John the Baptist, pointing people to Jesus? We ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior. Amen.